Uh, my name is Eric. I'm a pastor here. It's my privilege to preach God's word for us today. Uh, let me just pray for us once more before we jump in. God, we are your people, and you are our God. So as you speak your word to us, give us ears to hear hearts that are willing to receive your word and to respond as we ought with repentance and faith and worshipful obedience to you. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are currently in part 63 of our sermon series called Rediscover Jesus, where we're going through the Gospel of Luke together. Uh, So let's get right into today's sermon. It's titled, Our Honorable Duty. Desmond Doss was a follower of Christ who served as a U.S. Army medic during World War II. In May of 1945, during the Battle of Okinawa, he was part of a group of soldiers who were ordered to take a 400-foot cliff called Hacksaw Ridge. But the Japanese forces ambushed them, and there were heavy casualties. As a medic, Doss did not flee, but he stayed under constant enemy fire to save the lives of an estimated 75 wounded soldiers. He was wounded four times as he carried them one by one to the edge of the cliff, lowering them down safely on a rope-supported litter. Doss prayed, Lord, please give me, uh, please help me get one more. And when he got that one more, he prayed again, Lord, please help me get one more. He did this until he was too wounded to get any more, and he himself needed to be lowered down from that cliff. Doss received the Medal of Honor, which is the highest military honor in the U.S. But in response, he said that he felt that he was only keeping the golden rule in Matthew chapter 7, which is to do unto others what you would have them do unto you. As a medic, Doss understood that he had a serious responsibility to others. He prayed that God would empower him to live out his duty to save lives. And even when he was awarded the highest military honor for his deeds, He saw it as simply doing his duty, not only as a medic, but especially as a follower of Christ. As a servant of the Lord, Desmond Doss was a man who understood something about honorable duty. And that's what we're going to look more at today. So the one thing for today is this. As unworthy servants, our honorable duty is to help one another serve our worthy Lord. As unworthy servants, our honorable duty is to help one another Serve our worthy Lord. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. Luke 17, verses 1 to 10. The passage that we're looking at today ends a section that has been going on since the beginning of Luke chapter 15, where Jesus has been challenging and instructing the religious teachers of this day and his own disciples. Uh, The point of the last parable that Jesus told his disciples was that they ought to live this life for the sake of seeking the repentance and salvation of more lost people for heaven. And the point of the last parable that he told the religious teachers was that how one responds to God's word in this temporary life will decide how one spends eternity in the afterlife, specifically emphasizing the eternal torments of hell for sinners who never repent in this life. And that's where we are in today's passage as Jesus now turns back to speak to his own disciples. So let's read Luke chapter 17, uh, verses 1 to 10. It says this, And he, that is Jesus, said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith Like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. 
This is God's word. Uh, from this passage, we'll see the what, the how, and the why of our role as servants of the Lord. So first, the what. We have a serious responsibility to one another, and we find that in verses 1 to 4. Second, the how. We have the faith needed to obey, and we see that in verses 5 to 6. And third, the why. We are unworthy servants, merely doing our duty, and we find that in verses 7 to 10. So as servants of the Lord, what are we supposed to do? How are we to do it? And why should we do it? That's what we're going to unpack today. Keep your Bibles open to this passage in Luke chapter 17, as I'll be calling our attention to specific verses throughout. So first, let's get into the what. We have a serious responsibility to one another. Look at verses 1 to 2. As Christians, until the day we die, there will always be temptations to sin. But woe to the one through whom they come. Miserable consequences await those who tempt others to sin. A millstone was a round stone used for grinding grain, and it weighed hundreds of pounds. So if you had a millstone tied around your neck and were thrown into the sea, you were going to die a horrific, gruesome death by drowning. So Jesus is giving a serious warning here, saying that it would be better to go through that kind of mafia-style drowning than to cause people to stumble. The word for temptations to sin is literally stumbling blocks. So the point is very simple. Don't be a stumbling block for others. Don't cause people to sin. Don't lead people to turn away from Christ. And remember the context. Jesus is coming right off of talking about the eternal torments of hell and the larger context of how we as disciples should actively seek the repentance and salvation of the lost. So Jesus has eternal consequences in mind for what he's saying here. In essence, Jesus is communicating that being his disciple means that you're not just thinking about yourself, but you're also thinking about other people's followership of Christ. You're thinking about other people's salvation and their persevering to the end. In 1 Corinthians 8, some Christians were being stumbled by other Christians who were eating meat that was previously sacrificed to idols. And even though the Apostle Paul acknowledges that there is only one God, and this meat is really just meat, because he doesn't want to be a stumbling block to others, he says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And just like that, Paul, who had been eating meat his entire life, is willing to become a vegetarian. That's the extent that he was willing to go in order not to be a stumbling block to his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because it would be better to be drowned to death than to be a stumbling block to others in their followership of Christ. We have a serious responsibility to one another. There's no such thing as merely a private, individual relationship with God. But your relationship with God is intimately tied to other believers' relationship with God. We are to serve the Lord by helping one another to serve him. We are not to be stumbling blocks to one another, but we are to do everything we can to help each other be preserved in the faith to the end. So verse 3 says, pay attention to yourselves. Be watchful that you yourself do not stumble into sin and be watchful that you do not lead others to stumble into sin. If you're a Christian, then you wear the name of Christ. In your baptism, you publicly identified with Christ and he publicly identified with you. And so everything you say and do now either draws people closer towards Christ or draws people further away from him. So think to yourself, what about your life, if it were discovered, would stumble others? What are some things in your life right now that you've convinced yourself is somehow okay, but you know that if others found out, it would stumble them? It would move them further away from Christ. Maybe it's mistreating your classmate because everybody else is doing it. Maybe it's cheating on an exam or going along with others to do something unethical at work. Maybe it's your occasional tipsiness that you've convinced yourself is not really drunkenness. 
Maybe it's the ways you've told half-truths to deceive people into thinking more highly of you than they ought. Maybe it's the harsh tone or sarcastic ways you belittle others in your workplace or in the home. Maybe it's the sexual sins that you've allowed yourself to indulge in private. Whatever it may be, hear Jesus' words here. Pay attention to yourselves. There are eternal consequences, not only for you, but all those around you as you represent Christ. Verse 3 then continues saying, If your brother sins, rebuke him. Here we see that it's not enough to simply not be a stumbling block to others. It's not enough to say to yourself, as long as I'm not stumbling into sin, or as long as I'm not stumbling other, other people into sin, then I'm okay. No, Jesus doesn't allow for that to be enough. He goes further. He says, as a spiritual family, we have the responsibility of loving our brother or sister in sin by rebuking them and seeking their repentance. We can't remain passive in that. We have a responsibility to call that out in our brother or sister. You know, I know that this is very unnatural for most of us. And if, with, if we're honest with ourselves, the reason some of us do not rebuke our fellow brother in sin that we clearly see is in sin is because we love ourselves more than we really love them. It's more comfortable and much easier to just turn a blind eye, to ignore our brother's sin. And perhaps some of us have even convinced ourselves that somehow we're being loving by ignoring their sins. But that's a lie. That's the most unloving thing we can do amidst our brother or sister living in sin. Proverbs 20, 27 verses 5 to 6 says this, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. You know, we shouldn't wait passively for our brother to repent of his sins. And we shouldn't be passive for just waiting for someone else to rebuke him. If we see that our brother or sister is living in sin, we have the responsibility. Christ puts the expectation on us to take that initiative. If your brother sins, then you ought to rebuke him. Now, we should expect these conversations to be very hard. When I know that I need to rebuke someone living in sin, my heart starts beating faster. My stomach starts feeling nauseous. My palms get sweaty. My voice starts getting shaky. I'm scared of how the person might respond and how it will impact our relationship. And even when I get the words out of my mouth, it's sometimes met with defensiveness, justifications, and sometimes even turning the tables back on me. It's because of this and that. I couldn't help myself. God will understand. Nobody else thought there was anything wrong with it. Others agree with me. How could you even think that? I've heard all of that in response to me trying to love my brother or sister and rebuking them. And when I met with those responses, it's easy to think to myself, okay, fine, forget it. I tried, but if this is how the person is going to respond, I'm never going to try again. I know what it feels like to be the lone voice, the only voice of conscience in a person's life, and it's really discouraging. I know what it feels like to have the tables turned on me, and it's really painful. And everything in me wants to just drop it and move on. And I'm sure that's what that other person wants as well. But I can't, because I have a responsibility to them as a fellow brother in Christ. I ultimately don't stand before them on the final day, but I stand before Christ and I want to be able to stand with a clear conscience, knowing that I did everything I could to help my brother or sister turn away from sin and turn towards Christ in faith. On the other hand, when we are the ones being rebuked, we should make it very easy for people to rebuke us. If your brother or sister rebukes you for sin, then thank them for loving you enough and being courageous enough to say those hard things to you. You don't know how hard it was for them to get those words out of their mouths. They're not saying it because they want to hurt you. 
They're saying it because they love you. You know, don't jump to explaining yourself, but ask clarifying questions and verbalize what you hear them saying so that they know that you're listening and are trying to understand. Even if you disagree, do your best to listen. Ask clarifying questions. There might be 20% accuracy in what they're saying, but that 20% is gold. Listen for it. Take responsibility and apologize for your own specific words and actions and begin to brainstorm what might be helpful next steps as you move forward in your followership of Christ. Essentially, we need to shut off our inner lawyer that feels like we need to justify ourselves. You know, that was the attitude of the Pharisees, constantly justifying themselves, even when Jesus himself, who was 100% right, was rebuking them. Rather, we ought to adopt an attitude of repentance where we trust that we are already justified in Christ and therefore we can listen to understand, we can own up to our own sin, we can ask God and others for forgiveness. We don't need to justify ourselves. We're already justified in Christ and that gives us tremendous freedom to just listen and grow and mature. Now, what would it be like if all of us responded to rebuke in that kind of way? I'd imagine that we would become more and more like the church we see in Ephesians, whereby speaking the truth in love or by receiving the truth in love, we grow up in every way into Christ the head as the whole body of Christ builds each other up in love. We'll become more and more the mature church that Christ died and designed us to be. Look again at verse three. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Jesus makes it clear that our responsibility isn't just to rebuke, but especially to forgive. But in order for there to be forgiveness, there must be repentance. Here, it might be helpful to distinguish between a forgiving disposition, which is having a posture of readiness and willingness to forgive, and then forgiveness itself. Think of the father of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. He was constantly watching and waiting for his son to turn back, ready to embrace him if he saw him coming home. That's a forgiving disposition. But it wasn't until the son actually repented, turning away from his life of sin and came home that the father was able to embrace his son. That's forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So we're called to forgive each other the way that God has forgiven us. And how does God forgive us? There is a condition for his forgiveness. He doesn't just automatically forgive everyone in the world, but repentance is required. So in the case of forgiving one another, As followers of Christ, we should all have a forgiving disposition because we've been forgiven by God. But if there's no repentance by the one who is being rebuked for sin, then forgiveness cannot really take place. Again, for those who are not yet repentant, our posture is not one of holding grudges or bitterness in our hearts, but like the father of the prodigal son, our posture is one that is ready and willing, longing to forgive. Our hearts remain open rather than closed. Our hearts remain inviting rather than avoiding. We maintain a forgiving disposition even when repentance has not yet occurred. But if repentance does take place, then forgiveness must take place as well. It doesn't mean that it's going to be quick and easy. It might be very difficult, and both parties need to understand that. But there's never a place for a Christian to say in their hearts, I refuse to forgive this person, period. There's no place for that in a Christian's heart. For Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Quacking doesn't make you a duck, but ducks do quack. In the same way, forgiving others doesn't make you a Christian, but Christians do forgive. There's no such thing as a Christian who is unwilling to forgive. As those who have been forgiven greater debts against God, we should always have a forgiving disposition towards anyone who has far smaller debts against us. 
And if they come to that realization and turn in repentance, then we should rejoice with all of heaven at their repentance and share in God's joy of forgiving our brother or sister. And look at verse 4. As disciples, we're called to repeatedly forgive as our brother repeatedly sins against us and repeatedly repents. You know, seven is not our literal daily limit for forgiveness, but it is symbolic for a limitless amount of times a day that we forgive. As long as there is repentance, we must forgive. There's no other option. Now, to be clear, Repentance is not simply saying the magical words, I repent. But repentance is grief and hatred of our sin, turning away from it and turning towards God in faith with the resolve and purpose of obedience to him. It's a total disposition change. It's not just saying these words magically, I repent. And what Jesus is emphasizing here is that our default disposition ought to be a forgiving disposition. If they're repentant, then forgiveness must occur. When we express a forgiving disposition, no matter how many times a person falls or fails, and when we forgive them when they repent, not holding their sins against them, not waiting for the perfect moment to slip it out of our back pockets just to make them feel bad and accuse them, when we truly forgive the way that Christ has forgiven us, we communicate the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And in that way, we are acting as their true brother or sister in Christ, doing all that we can not to hinder them, but to help them in their followership of Christ. So first, as servants of the Lord, we have a serious responsibility to one another to help our brothers and sisters in their followership of Christ. Second, how are we able to do that? That's what we'll look at next in the how. We have the faith needed to obey. Look at verse 5. Essentially, after hearing Jesus' commands to pay attention to themselves in order not to be a stumbling block, to rebuke their brothers in sin, to forgive them repeatedly as many times as they repent, the apostles start freaking out because they don't think that they can do it. There's no way. It's too hard. But why do they cry out to Jesus, the Lord, to increase their faith? What does faith have to do with obedience? Everything. Obedience requires faith because obeying is hard. People sin, whether by commission or omission, because it's pleasurable and comfortable. It's easy to sin, but it's so hard to obey. The apostles understand that to obey in the ways that Jesus has just commanded will be painful. It will be painful to put restrictions on their lives for the sake of others' followership of Christ. It will be painful to initiate uncomfortable conversations with a brother or sister in sin to rebuke them and seek their repentance. It will be painful to repeatedly forgive those who repeatedly sin and repeatedly repent. It's hard to obey. So in order to obey, They have to really believe that enduring the pain of obedience is worth it. They have to really believe that what Jesus commands is good and right and best and has eternal consequences. Because in that moment, everything inside of them screams, no, I don't want to. If they don't really believe what Jesus is saying is right and good, has eternal consequences, there's no way they would be able to obey. There's no way they would even want to obey. So in order to obey what Jesus commands, they cry out to him, increase our faith. Now look at verse 6. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. The mustard seed was among the smallest seeds in Palestine. In contrast, the mulberry tree had an extensive, intricate root system that the rabbi said would take 600 years to untangle. So to uproot a mulberry tree and have it thrown into the sea was another way of saying, it is impossible. It cannot be done. But what is impossible with men is possible with God. The context is that the apostles are crying out to the Lord for help because they already know that they don't have it within themselves to obey his commands. We can't do it. 
So Jesus is not giving them a pep talk telling them, you can do it. I believe in you. Rather, he's saying, you're right. You can't do it. But believe in God. The presence of little faith in a big God is what enables the impossible to happen. And what is the impossible here? It's the ability to obey our serious responsibility to one another in our fellowship of Christ. To pay attention to ourselves, to rebuke those in sin, to forgive others when they repent. That's the impossible that he gives us faith to obey. None of us can do that in and of ourselves. But God can uproot our old nature and implant in us a new nature. God can transform us from the inside out so that we can and want to obey his commands. If we have faith in Christ as he's offered to us in the gospel, then we become a new creation. It doesn't matter how much faith we have, but if we have any genuine faith at all, no matter how small or how weak, we are now empowered to do what we could previously not do. The effectiveness of our faith is not about how much is our faith, but about how big is our God in whom we trust and what he's done to transform us from the inside out. We are no longer who we once were. To be clear, this is not faith to do whatever we want, but this is faith to do what Christ has commanded. It's faith to obey And when we look at the rest of the New Testament, that's exactly how the disciples understood what Jesus was saying here. The apostles didn't express their faith by going around yelling at mulberry trees to be dropped into the sea. Nowhere do you read about that anywhere in the New Testament. But you see the apostles and all the disciples expressing their faith by exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other. They lived out their faith by loving one another in this profound and supernatural way. The entire New Testament testifies to that fact. They were given faith to live in supernatural love as God's people, and the whole world took notice. Now, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you should know that there are two common misunderstandings of the gospel that have led many people astray. And even if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I think we can sometimes slip into these misunderstandings if we're not careful, especially when we come to a passage like this that talks about obeying God's commands. The first misunderstanding is that I am saved by my obedience. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that none of us is righteous and none of us have obeyed the perfect standard of God's holiness. And therefore, all of us deserve just punishment for our sins. But Christ came to be our substitute, to live a perfect life of obedience in our place and die the penalty that we deserve for our disobedience so that all who repent of their sins and believe in him as Lord and Savior are saved, not by our own obedience, but by his perfect obedience on our behalf. Salvation is a free gift that we can never earn. It's all by God's grace. The second misunderstanding is that if I'm saved by God's grace and not my own works, then I don't need to obey. That is also not the gospel. You know, we're not saved by our own obedience, but by the perfect obedience of Christ credited to us through faith. But Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 is very clear, equally clear, that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, for obedience. Obedience is what a saved person does doesn't save a person, but you will see obedience in someone who is saved. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in Luke 17. When Jesus' disciples feel that they don't have enough faith to obey, Jesus reassures them that the grace that God provides not only gives them faith to be saved, but also faith to obey. He's provided it. So even as we're talking about obeying Jesus' commands here in Luke 17, we want to be careful to avoid these two misunderstandings of the gospel that so many people have stumbled into. We need to be clear that our obedience to Christ is not for our salvation, but it's about working out or living out our salvation that is all of grace. And we also need to be clear that grace does not exempt obedience, but grace empowers obedience. It doesn't excuse us, it enables us to obey. But for the apostles, at least in this moment, They feel that they need more faith to obey what Jesus has commanded. You know, perhaps many of us can relate. 
Oftentimes we think the problem is a matter of more, of not having enough. If only I had more time, more experience, more resources, more faith, then I could do what God is commanding me to do. But what Jesus says here is meant to be very encouraging. In essence, he says, you don't need more faith. You just need the presence of faith in the Lord. It's not the amount of faith, but the presence of genuine faith in who I am. Now, there will be times when God calls us to do what seems daunting, scary, even impossible. Perhaps it's to have a difficult conversation with someone that you care deeply about. And perhaps you're afraid of experiencing backlash from your parents or losing your job or ruining a friendship. And in those moments, it may feel like you need more faith to do what God is commanding you to do. But here, Christ wants us to remember, to remember that perhaps it isn't that we need more faith, but it's that we need to remember and apply the faith that we already have. Remember your adoption, that God does not leave you as a spiritual orphan to fend for yourself, but your heavenly Father provides, protects, guides you as his beloved son or daughter, now and forever. Therefore, you can be secure no matter how much criticism or rejection you may face because you are never alone, but you forever belong in the family of God. Remember your sanctification, that the Holy Spirit is committed to conforming you more and more into the likeness of Christ. And everything you go through now is to bring to completion that good work that he started in you. Therefore, you know that you are not a victim of your circumstances, but God is sovereignly ordaining them for your good and for his glory. Remember your glorification, that this life is not all there is, but we live for, we long for Christ to return so that we may enjoy him forever in the new heavens and new earth, where there will be no more sin, tears, pain, or death. Therefore, whatever temporary pain you endure in this life will pale in comparison to the eternal comforts that await you in your heavenly home. As believers in Jesus Christ, these are the glorious gospel truths that we believe in. This is what already belongs to us as as believers. Now, how would our insecurities and fears diminish as we remembered what we already believe? What would obedience look like if we applied the faith that we already have? It's only when we press into the faith that we already have in Christ that we'll be able to express the supernatural love for one another that Christ calls us to express. He's given us that faith. Let's press into it. So how do we do it? How do we press into the faith that we have in Christ? How do we cultivate this kind of relationship with Christ where our faith in him is not just conceptual, but deeply personal? God's word says that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. There is no way that we will be able to muster this kind of supernatural love for one another unless we are abiding in the supernatural source and love found in Christ alone. You know, the fountain of living water is always gushing forth And he invites us, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. The way we're able to regularly serve others is by regularly being served by Christ. The way we're able to regularly give to others is by regularly receiving from Christ. We cannot give unless we first receive. Otherwise, we have nothing to give. Pouring out to others is only a natural result of first being poured into. So throughout your day and week, are you regularly coming to him for a drink? Are you receiving from him? Receive from him through his word. Receive from him through corporate worship with his people. Receive from him by simply asking of him in prayer. We forfeit so many benefits by just not coming to him. It's always available for us. He's given it to us. It's ours in Christ yet we don't come. Christ means his words here to be an encouragement. You are not lacking anything in him. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He will more and more empower you to live out your faith in him. He will more and more enable you to love your brothers and sisters in the way that he does. 
he will do it. He's already given you the grace and the faith to do so. And when we come to him, when we receive from him, when we pour out in kind, all people will know that we are his disciples. Not to our own praise, but to the praise of our glorious God who graciously provides us with the faith we need to obey. So first, as servants of the Lord, we have a serious responsibility to one another to help our brother and sister in their fellowship of Christ. Second, we can do it because God's grace provides us with the faith to obey. But third, the question is, why should we obey at all? That's what we'll look at next in the why. We are unworthy servants merely doing our duty. Look at verses 7 and 9. Here, Jesus essentially tells another parable in the form of three rhetorical questions, where the expected responses are no, yes, and no. No, no master would invite their servant to eat with them after they worked hard outside all day. Yes, the master will ask the servant to prepare supper for him, to dress properly, which literally means to gird yourself with with an apron or towel in preparation for service, and to serve him while he eats and drinks. And then afterwards, the servant will be permitted to eat and drink. No, the servant should not expect to be thanked for doing what the master commanded him to do. Now, Jesus is not encouraging us to be ungrateful or rude to others. Remember, parables are not all-inclusive, but there's a particular point that Jesus is making here, which he says next. Verse 10 says this, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So Jesus' point here is not so much about the master as it is about the servant. The example to imitate is not the master here, but it's the servant. Jesus' disciples are servants of God who should not feel like they are doing anything extra or that God owes them anything for simply doing what was commanded of them. Remember the context. In verses 1 to 4, Jesus says that his disciples must have profound care and concern for their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, especially in regard to avoiding sin, rebuking sin, and forgiving sin. In verses 5 to 6, the disciples cry out, Oh my goodness, there's no way. How in the world are we going to be able to do that? It's so hard. It's impossible. And Jesus says, The same grace that has provided you faith to believe in me has also provided you the faith to obey me. And it's not that amount of faith, but the presence of faith that empowers you to do what I've just commanded you to do. And Jesus' point here in verse 7 to 10 then is this. All of that is not super Christianity. All of that is normal Christianity. You're not doing anything extra, but you're simply doing what is expected of every Christian. You know, perhaps some of us have separate categories of Christian in our minds. Katepe Christian, lukewarm Christian, regular Christian, passionate Christian, devout Christian. I'm sure there's many other subcategories as well. But no such distinction seemed to exist in the mind of Christ. In his mind, you're either his disciple or you're not. In heaven, you're either a Christian or you're not. There are no tiers of expectations for regular Christians versus devout Christians. But the expectations are the same for anyone who considers themselves a Christian. We all have a serious responsibility to one another. And Christ has indeed given us the faith to obey. Therefore, it is right for him to expect us to obey. Obedience to Christ is not something extra that differentiates devout Christians from regular Christians. No, obedience to Christ is the expectation of every Christian. We are servants of the Lord. And it is our duty to do what he commands, knowing that he graciously provides us with the faith needed to obey him. At the same time, we should notice that Jesus doesn't place this expectation on any one disciple, but he called them to live this out together, collectively, as we In another part of scripture, we're called to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. 
The assumption behind that is that not everyone will be doing well at the same time. If there are those who are grieving and weeping, they need to be cared for and loved on, not expected to just leave that all at home and just come and continue to serve and give of themselves without pause, without respite. So it's not that if you're a Christian, then you can never struggle, but you need to be on 24-7. And you always need to serve, 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 give, give, give. No. Our serious responsibility to one another does not fall all on you, nor does it all fall on just the elders or deacons or just the life group leaders and ministry team leaders. No, our responsibility to one another must be carried out collectively by the congregation, by all the members of the church. We, none of us can serve each other perfectly or 24-7. We all go through seasons of sufferings and struggles. That means that we cannot rely on just one or two people to help us in our fellowship of Christ. And you cannot try to be that one person for everyone. The responsibility is too much for any one person to to carry. And people who either expect it or attempt to be that one or two people to carry, all of that will find themselves soon crushed by the weight of it all. It wasn't meant to be carried by just a few people. If that's ever been you, then you know that that path only leads toward disappointment, exhaustion, bitterness, burnout. Remember, Jesus calls us collectively as a whole church to say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. It's a community, church-wide effort to serve the Lord and to help each other serve the Lord. Now, I want us to think for a moment about the honor that we have in our duty to one another. You know, Jesus doesn't call us to do anything petty here. He calls us to do something that is of great honor. Think of the 343 New York City firefighters who gave their lives on September 11, 2001 in the line of duty as he rescued countless lives from collapsing buildings. Was their duty to save lives not honorable? Or think of other civil servants like school teachers, police officers, military personnel, social workers, court judges. I know that these roles are often marred by the hearts of sinful men and women, but when civil servants carry out their responsibilities with justice, truth, and kindness, their service is undoubtedly honorable as it builds up the privileges and protects the rights of the citizens. And that's the kind of honor that Christ bestows in our duty to one another. Like firefighters on 9-11, We give our lives in the line of duty to save countless lives for heaven. Like civil servants, it is our honorable duty to serve our fellow servants, our our fellow citizens in the kingdom of God. I want us to recapture the beauty and honor we have in obeying Jesus' commands. You know, many of us perhaps feel aimless, meaningless in our lives and what we're doing. I can tell you, if you're a Christian, you're obeying what Christ commands. It is so worthy of honor because you are leading more people to see who he is. It's not just obedience for the sake of obedience, but we have the great honor and privilege to be part of the salvation and sanctification of others. It is of eternal consequence. What's more honorable than living for Christ? Now, I also have to ask the question, especially in this day and age, is it wrong to be motivated by duty? Is it wrong to be motivated by duty? Think about that for a second. Perhaps many in our day would say, yes, being motivated by duty is wrong. Especially in the last few decades, it seems that duty is seen more and more as negative and something to avoid. That doing anything out of duty is somehow disingenuous, contrived, or inauthentic. But Jesus' answer here seems to be, no. Being motivated by duty is not wrong. Because duty to obey is always better than disobedience. Duty to obey is always better than disobedience. Still, duty is only a base motivation. It's not the highest motivation. Duty is the motivation we have when all other motivations are not there. For example, think of marriage vows. 
Vows are essentially about duty. They might not feel like it on the wedding day, but trust me, when push comes to shove, vows are essentially about duty. You make marriage vows because you know you won't always feel like doing what you're vowing to do. Vows are there, so when the feelings are not there, you are still going to do what you vow to do. Nobody wants to be in a marriage, or any relationship for that matter, where you only do the right thing when you feel like doing it. Only be committed to me when you feel like it. Nobody wants to be in a relationship like that. At the same time, nobody wants to be in a relationship where everything is a matter of duty. But duty is there when the feelings are not. Feelings will lag, and duty will help you during those humps. And as you keep showing up and keep doing what is right, feelings will eventually catch up, and you'll find that duty begins to become engulfed in the higher motivation of desire where it's not just about doing the right things, but wanting to do those things. It's not just about spending time together, but wanting to spend time together. Desire is the aim, but the foundation and building blocks for that begin with duty. Likewise, think of baptism and the Lord's Supper. In baptism, we publicly make covenant vows with the Lord. And in the Lord's Supper, we publicly renew those covenant vows with him as a whole church. And one of those vows that we make at baptism and continue to renew in the Lord's Supper is I commit by God's grace to follow Jesus forever as his disciple in the fellowship of his church. What is that vow about? It's about duty. It's saying, even when I don't feel like it, even when conditions are not ideal, I'm going to continue to be part of the fellowship of Christ's church. I vow to live the Christian life with fellow believers as a meaningful member of a local church. I commit to fighting sin in my life, to helping my brother or sister fight sin in their lives, and to have a forgiving disposition towards one another. And all of this is non-negotiable. Whether I feel like it or not, this is how I'm going to live. I will make no excuses. I will not justify myself. This is how I vowed to live before my Lord. Why do we make these vows? Why do we enter into covenants? Because God knows our sinful hearts. And he knows that we will not always feel like doing what we know we ought to do. So when our sinful flesh, Satan's schemes, the world's deceptions, or just unideal circumstances all work against us, we go back to our baseline motivation of duty. I made vows to my Lord in baptism. I've renewed those vows to him in the Lord's Supper. I've covenanted with my brothers and sisters in Christ here through membership. This isn't anything extra that I'm doing, but I'm simply keeping the vows that I have made. I'm a Christian, and this is what it means. And how about that phrase? We are unworthy servants. How do you feel when you hear that? Is that your conception of yourself, unworthy servant? You know, how a servant thinks about himself and his duty depends on who his master is. In this case, the duty is honorable, not just because of the task itself, but it's honorable because of who it is done for. I would imagine that the driver of the president of Indonesia would be more likely to think of himself as unworthy than a taxi driver of a random person off the street. It's the same task of driving a person around, but what makes it more or less a privilege or more or less honorable in the eyes of the driver is who he is driving, who he is serving. And for the Christian, our master is far greater than all the presidents, prime ministers, or kings of this world. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He was and is and always will be. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the great I Am, the Lion of Judah. Yet he is also the Lamb who was slain to take away the sins of the world, including our own. That's our master. In fact, the master that we serve is not at all like the master that Jesus talks about in this parable. The master that we serve is the master that serves us. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus, the master, got up from the table. He put a towel around his waist, and he began washing 
his disciples' feet. And the very next day, he went to the cross to wash them of their sins, to take the full punishment that we deserve for our sins. And on the final day when he returns, Jesus said this earlier in Luke chapter 12, verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he, that's Jesus, will dress himself for service and have them, his servants, recline at table. And he will come and serve them. Jesus is far greater than all the masters of this world. He is a master who gave his life to serve his servants. And he calls his servants to follow him in doing likewise. And it's our privilege, our joy, our honor to serve him in that way. It may begin with an honorable sense of duty, but as we continue to fix our eyes on who our master is, what he has done for us, what he has promised for us, we find that the Christian life becomes more and more about desire. We desire to serve the one who has served us. We desire to help one another to serve him. We desire the world to know that he is the Lord worthy of such service. So once again, the one thing for today is this. As unworthy servants, our honorable duty is to help one another serve our worthy Lord. As unworthy servants, our honorable duty is to help one another serve our worthy Lord. As we remain seated, let's respond now to God's word. I'll keep your Bibles open to this passage, and we'll just spend a few moments of quiet reflection and prayer in response to God's word. Let's pray.